Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. So this morning, as I was sitting here with all of you, I was thinking of that wonderful Lin-Manuel Miranda song from Hamilton, I want to be in the room where it happens. <laughs> <laughs> That's what an intensive is, right? The room where it happens. <laughs> so we'll continue um, with our read aloud program here. And we're in the section about Jogo, Gradually, I found out more about Jogo's background as we talked. I read the collection of her talks, Everyday Zen, that had just come out, and I learned that she had been happily married to a brilliant young biochemistry professor at the University of Michigan, a faculty wife who arranged luncheons and entertained with four small children. Suddenly, tragedy struck as her husband developed schizophrenia and grew so irrational and violent that he had to be institutionalized, where he lived until his death. Once, she told me, he had thrown a knife at her while she was holding their baby. She had instinctively thrown the infant out the window to one of the older children standing outside in the snow. I can't imagine how chilling such a life must be. She moved to California with her children and took a position as the coordinator for the chemistry department at UC San Diego. This is a lot of, you know, very, very egoic professors who are, you know, Nobel Prize winners and, you know, famed in their field. So she did a great job with them. <clears throat> Once she had been a concert level pianist and a professional caliber swimmer, but now she was consumed with work and care of her children. With a friend, she went to a talk given by Son Nakagawa Roshi, a teacher from Japan. She was so struck by his demeanor that she asked if she could study with him. He was leading a session and she signed up, filled with anticipation. In her first meeting, she told him she was ready for enlightenment. He sent her to work in the kitchen. And that entire <laughs> session, she scrubbed, dismantled, cleaned and mopped the kitchen over and over from early morning until late at night. She got no break and she was exhausted. Finally, one day she was given a little break and she went to her, her bed to take a nap, but someone else was already napping in her bed. So she just went back to the kitchen. <laughs> she spent no time in the Zendo or in Daisan with the teacher or Dokusan with the teacher. She just cleaned and cleaned what had been cleaned again. It broke down something in her, she said, and she later described it as a turning point an incredibly valuable teaching. Eventually, Soen Roshi had to return to Japan and he told Joko she should work with Taizan Maizumi, Roshi, the Zen teacher at ZCLA in Los Angeles. It's a three and a half hour drive on a good day, but Joko began regularly attending. I could not believe the parallels in our stories. She had lost a living husband just as I had, and she had been a single mother just like me, although for four children, not just one. This made my life seem easy by comparison. She had worked in the same academic environment I was navigating as a graduate student. 
Only she had managed somehow to get formal Zen training at a real residential Zen center with a genuine Japanese male teacher. I was envious and I was captivated by her energy and her raw courage. <clears throat> with Hakuin Yasutani, she had completed the koan curriculum, but she was generally dismissive of ko koan study. She said she had worked with some students on koans at their request. And in fact, I did some koan work with her, curious about that way of practice and study. But she said, everybody thinks koan study will lead to enlightenment, but I know too many people who have completed koan study and are still not very nice people. Okay. <laughs> so there is Joko with Maizumi and Gempo. She's on the right. She's on the right, in case you have trouble with the shaved heads telling the difference. <clears throat> okay, so that's where we were. This was the previous page. It's just um, the page we were on before yesterday. <clears throat> her direct, pragmatic, laser-like intelligence and her practical way of teaching was bracing and sometimes terrifying. <clears throat> A nuclear family had detonated at ground zero and the radiation was killing me. It was not about who was right or wrong. It was not about good or bad. It was a hurricane, an inferno. Like a broken, ashen survivor, I had looked for a Zen center and found ZCSD. When I finally met Joko in that first Dyson, I was scared. I said, I don't know who I am. The person I thought I was has been completely demolished. There's nothing there. She said, that is a perfect place to begin. In my next Dyson, Joko asked me, why are you here? I knew this was not a trivial question. From deep inside me came the answer, I want to be a better mother. Well, that's a story, she replied briskly. I was stunned. I felt as if she had dumped a pitcher of ice water on top of my head. And she was ringing the bell, so I had no choice but to get up and leave. My mind was blank as I drove home. I knew she was right, but what? Slowly, I comprehended it. My constant sense of being so far from the mother Ben deserved, my impossible ideal of what a mother should be and do, my sense of apology and failure and longing for a better self, were poisoning my relationship with my son. As I dropped all of that story, I began to be able to relate with him directly and without regret or remorse. And that was an enormous liberating experience. Sessions at Zen Center in San Diego began with a lottery you submitted an application postmarked no earlier than a certain date. It wasn't completely random. Joko reviewed applications and personally selected some applicants, someone applying from Germany, someone with experience as a session cook, someone who had been passed over before. You had to list skills on the application because serious work would be done during the work period that week. Electrical, carpentry, painting, plumbing, landscaping. In addition to regular chores such as cleaning bathrooms, vacuuming, washing windows, and preparing meals. All of the materials and supplies would be purchased and made ready in advance by the work leader. Groceries were purchased and stored by the head cook. I love this photo because of the kindness in her eyes. That was the look she gave me when I said I was demolished. We arrived excited and apprehensive with our sleeping bags and pillows and we were shown where our patch of floor would be and our seat in the Zendo. Each morning, the sleeping bags and all personal possessions had to be rolled up and neatly stowed in a closet because every square inch of those spaces would soon be filled 
was ever Townsend's Afu's. The day began with optional Qigong in the garden, led in silence by Elizabeth. Then two periods of zazen before breakfast, which consisted of oatmeal or granola, fresh cut fruit, yogurt or milk, and orange juice. Condiments would be raisins and brown sugar and nuts. Breakfast and lunch were served formal orioki style. The menu never varied from day to day. Lunch would be baked tofu, steamed vegetables, rice, and herbal tea, with soy sauce and gomasio as, as condiments. During the day, the tea table was always accessible with peanut butter and jam, bread, fresh fruit, hard-boiled eggs, and herbal tea. Now you see where we get this. <laughs> In this way, those who needed more food could supplement the meals. Because the first two meals of the day were orioki meals, orioki instruction would be offered the evening before the start of session, while the cooks were getting set up. For supper, though, an informal buffet was set up on the patio with salad, cheeses, hearty breads, and rice cakes, plus a magical vegetable soup that grew richer and more complex through the week as more leftover vegetables and rice were added each day. After lunch, there was a good-sized break. Some people napped, some did yoga stretches, but I nearly always walked. You could walk west to a little shopping center, which was always kind of a surreal experience. People in cars going into the little coffee shop or coming out of the Greek restaurant in the corner, in a kind of absent-minded fog. But to the north, you could climb a long hill to a park among the pines and palms with benches and a walking path. There you could look across the neighborhood to the ocean below. It was peaceful and quiet and close to the sky. Those mild San Diego evenings we sat in silence, scattered around in the garden, tired but content, contemplating the long evening sit ahead while the sky turned rose, then violet, then indigo as the first stars showed up. The walks were neatly swept, the carpets vacuumed, the bathroom sparkling, the flower arrangements placed, the garden tools neatly stored in the little shed for the night. So you can see on the right-hand side was our session schedule. Next door, music spilled out of a lively apartment building that was populated by mostly Spanish-speaking workers, maids, nurses, daycare workers. And I often wondered how mystified they must have been by the spectacle of 40 or 50 people eating together outside in complete silence. We washed our dishes, dried them, and enjoyed a little break before heading back into the zendo. Because we were so tired, because we had already spent the day on the cushion battling our conditioning, our desperate longing for the bell to end zazen, the evening sitting was a kind of gift. Emptied out, bored with our own minds and our petty thoughts, there was a simplicity to it, a surrender that proved restful, even for our aching bodies longing for the end of the day. Outside, the breeze stirred the wind chimes. In the neighborhood, People were going about their daily lives. A motorcycle revved up, the laughter of people headed to a party, music coming from down the street. We were still sitting. During the Zazen periods, there would be an announcement that Daisan with Joko was available. You had to weigh whether to go, or to wait until you had something a bit more profound to share with her, or a major question, or when your knees would need a break from sitting, or when you were on your last nerve, or when you felt completely at sea. Joko saw everyone every single day of session, and there would be 40 or 50 people there. 
Of course, Dyson with Joko seldom lasted more than 10 minutes, so he developed a keen focus in meeting her. During my first session, I fell apart on the third day, and when I went in to see her, I was weeping uncontrollably. She asked what I was crying about, and all I could choke out was, I don't know. She was very kind, but she was also strong. She said, well, your first session, you just try to get through it. But if you leave in the middle, you lose the opportunity to see it through. I was quite surprised because I had never crossed my mind to leave. I was just dissolving. At the end of a session, there would be a kind of question and answer session with Joko, and these were always an opportunity to witness her sparkling wit and spontaneous wisdom. The cheekiest questions always seemed to come from young men, for some reason. One said to her, when I started this session, I thought you were just an opinionated old woman. She shot back, and do you know what you are? An opinionated young man. Another challenged her, are you enlightened? I hope I should never have such a thought, she said tartly. She was quick, she was fierce, she was strong and bold, but she was also kind and deeply loved her students. After the session, we would share a kind of feast prepared by the cooks, lasagna, salad, chocolate cake. It felt like an incredible extravagance, sitting under the enormous Jeffranda tree on the patio with this rich food, finally able to talk to each other. Then Joko would meet folks informally in the living room of her little house, and she looked just like that. <clears throat> I was always surprised by what people would ask, what they would think to say. One young man explained that he was traveling around from Zen centers to yoga ashrams and other spiritual centers. And he remarked that it didn't really matter what teacher you met there since the teachings are all the same. I was kind of startled. And so I blurted out, you can waste a lot of decades that way. You need to plant your flag somewhere if you want to go deep. Joko reparented me. In a talk, she said, Zen practice is about moving from a life of drama to a life of no drama. Most people are not interested in that. But I was relieved. I longed for that, coming from a family with a flamboyant, volatile mother and a stoic, quiet father. Their epic arguments, my dad's stony silences, and my mother's unpredictable, explosive temper were exhausting. No drama was something I had been seeking, it seems, my whole life. But what did that mean? Joko taught me. At a time when I was completely devastated, she was a rock so strong I could rest there. Fortunately, she was not sympathetic because I didn't want that. She didn't stoke my grief or fuel my shame and heartbreak and guilt that together engulfed me. In my first Dyson, as I started to explain the whole catastrophe, she stopped me. That's too much for Dyson. Make an appointment and come see me. And then, astonishingly, she gave me her private phone number and rang her bell. So one Saturday afternoon, we sat in the living room of her little house while I poured out the whole story, my love for Bill, the crushing loss of the landscape business, the move from our beloved farm, Bill's depression, the terrible change in his personality, his heart surgery, the losing struggle to manage on my income alone, the source of our home, the loss of our home, his unwillingness to engage in couples therapy and his return to Wisconsin, leaving Ben and me in San Diego. I told her about graduate school, teaching, work, and struggling to be a good parent to my luminous son. Most of all, I shared my grief and guilt that I had not been able to keep the family together, to take care of the man I loved, but no longer knew. Now I sat in front of Joko, ashamed and broken. 
Life doesn't make mistakes, she said matter-of-factly. And from this point, she began handing me strong timber for building a new life. At a conference of Zen teachers where I was a student helper, a well-known Zen teacher asked me, who is your teacher? I said, Joko Beck. She got a faraway look in her eyes. Joko is vast, she said. And the teachers around her were nodding, too. This perfectly captured what it felt like to sit in front of her in Daisan. It was like sitting on an open prairie with a boundless, clear blue sky above, just the two of you, the only living beings in the whole cosmos. Sitting and waiting to meet with her, did you have a question, a problem, an idea, an experience to relate? They vanished in an instant in the bright, thin air. How important were they, really? Of course, we persisted. We unloaded all of our messy lives and troubled minds, and she meant all of it with patience, with kindness, with sparkling humor, and with the sword of Manjushri. We were just not there yet, until suddenly we were. <clears throat> in session, there were unexpected delights. Joko would ask one of her students to give instruction in the Alexander method for posture to ease our sitting. Once, during the last exhausting sitting period of the night, we heard the haunting music of a shakuhachi flute that one of Joko's students was playing in the garden. Or the cooks would break up chocolate bars and leave them on the tea table. In every room, there were elegant flower arrangements that were refreshed every day. In the zendo, there was a simple wood altar, beautifully crafted by one of Joko's students. It featured a tall stone rather than a Buddha. Its rounded contours vaguely suggested a standing figure. Buddha? Anyan? Majushri? Sometimes it seemed to me to represent the implacable immediacy of just this. At other times, it felt like the rock when I was stuck between a rock and a hard place in my practice or in my life. There's the altar. I found being a single parent kept me grounded in present moment experience. Is that a fever? What will we actually eat? No, we don't have time to find six bugs to take to school this morning. It's like living with a tiny Zen teacher. Everything is a koan. Furthermore, you have to abandon so many of your own preferences, habits, and comforts. I asked Joko, how do people without children manage the way? She paused for a moment and finally said, well, it just takes them a lot longer. My <laughs> commitment to the path grew stronger, and I asked Joko whether there was some way to show this commitment, some kind of ceremony. She laughed and said, maybe we would do some private ceremony in the garden, but I didn't dare ask when. Once, Joko had confided in me that she wished she had never begun giving Dharma transmission. She discovered that it raised new issues in practice and working with ego for her Dharma heirs. She intended to continue working with her students after Dharma transmission to address those issues. But once students had received Dharma transmission, they did not maintain a connection with her and it seemed they no longer considered her their ongoing teacher. She had started the Ordinary Mind School as a way to continue this work, but it had not turned out that way. She looked at me keenly and said, but I would give you Dharma transmission. I don't want it, I hastily replied. I have enough trouble already with the issues and egoic mind I have. 
Later, I realized that this was a very self-centered view, and I would come to regret not recognizing what my Dharma transmission would have meant for my Sangha and my capacity to support them. In any event, Joko's method of transmission was unorthodox. She would give Dharma transmission privately, conferring it with a sentence. And then later, it would be announced in the newsletter, the mimeograph newsletter. <clears throat> this caused fits later in the Soto Zen establishment. One teacher told me after Joko died, it's terrible. We have to redo all of these Dharma transmissions properly. And I noticed that in her Wikipedia article, they do not even use the term Dharma transmission, but only say she authorized teachers. This is a grave misrepresentation. Joko had broken free from the Soto Zen establishment. She herself had full Dharma transmission from Taizan Maizumi, and therefore was officially empowered to give Dharma transmission in any manner she chose. Zen tradition is full of similar branching lineages, including Dogen himself, and in modern times, the Sambo Kyodan school. It happens whenever Zen becomes imprisoned by its own institutions, rituals, and forms. There is a constant tension between faithful adherence to the historical Chan Zen models and the spontaneity and creative vitality that is the heart of Zen practice. Going too far in either direction will prove fatal. The fundamentalism of rigid adherence to an imagined past on the one hand, and on the other, the chaotic drift of anything goes and self-authorizing teachers promoting a vision of Zen, a version of Zen unmoored from its foundational principles. It can turn into a self-indulgent meander without a moral compass or a true understanding of vow. I met with Joko in the summer of 1994 for a painful farewell. I had finished graduate school at UC San Diego and accepted a faculty position at University of Texas in Austin. I came to say goodbye to my beloved Zen teacher. Over four years, our relationship had been a lifeline for me, growing deep and profound in our work together. She was strong and resilient when I was brokenhearted and desolate in the breakup of my marriage. And she was kind and caring as I struggled to manage three jobs, a full-time graduate program, and learning to be a single parent for my son. She was tart, funny, and down to earth. I couldn't conceive of a life without her presence at the heart of it. What will I do, I asked her, without my teacher and my son to hear? She gave me a warm smile and said, you can call me every week. Come back for session when you can. Here's my private number. I must have still looked stricken because she added, you can start a sitting group there. Put some flyers. You can use my name. I was shocked, nearly speechless. I don't know anything. With a twinkle in her eye, she said, you know a little bit. And then she rang the bell to dismiss me from Dyson, leaving me once again in a state of utter confusion. But at least she had said I could call her. Moving Ben and I from San Diego, where we had lived happily for 12 years, to an Austin apartment, getting settled in a new place, with a new high school for him, and starting a demanding and engaging new job teaching was exciting and all-consuming. I was practicing Zazen every day, but I had no thought of starting a Zen group. It was out of the question, really. So, 735, <laughs> Yeah, Flint took that picture. Oh. And that was, um, I think that wasn't our last visit, but our yeah. second, to last. second to last visit with Joko. 
She was 92 in that picture. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> she said to me, look what's become of you. <laughs> All right, so that's enough probably. Um, I'm going to stop the sharing and close this up. But uh, thank you for indulging me. That's part one of our serial production. So um, that's what it is. This is why I haven't been as available giving Dharma talks, leading classes, and things like that. Because at some point, everything does project. Okay.